Luke chapter 13 this morning. We'll be looking in verses 1 through 9. I want to talk to you about a teachable moment. A teachable moment. Several years ago, after one of the hurricanes hit Florida, uh, there was a picture that showed up in the newspaper. It was on the roof of this house that pretty much had been demolished by the heavy rains and the harsh winds. But somebody had scrawled in big letters a message across the top of the roof. I guess they took a picture, one of the helicopter flyovers. And this is what the message said. It said, okay, God, you have our attention. Now what? Some people would call that superstitious. It's just some folks, they're trying to make sense out of a natural disaster. Asking themselves, well, maybe it's a sign from God. Maybe... Maybe he's trying to tell us something. Maybe he's angry. But I have learned that blaming disasters on God can be just as sketchy as blaming them on the devil. I believe God rules. I believe God reigns over his universe. But I am very hesitant to call every tragedy an act of God. What I do know is that God will take tragedies. He will take horrific incidences, and he'll use them. He'll use them to teach us. He'll use them to give us a moment to slow you down, a moment to get you to stop and think, a moment to get your attention. He can use anything. He can use a a natural disaster like a hurricane. He He can use a terrorist attack. Believe it or not, he can even use a school shooting. Bad things happen without warning, but bad things are not unique to our times. They've happened throughout history. And we're going to read about a couple of them this morning. Happened a long time ago. They could have happened yesterday. But they happened a long time ago, and Jesus uses this, these two incidents as a teachable or as teachable moments. So we're going to listen to him as he uses them that way, and then... By God's grace, we're going to learn what he has to say to us this morning. If you will, I'll ask you to stand with me and let's read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 9. Hear the word of our God. There were present at that, excuse me, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Let's pray.
Lord, your word says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament your handiwork. You show us so much through what you have created. You show us so much through creation that you want us to understand. You don't show us everything. We still need your special revelation in Scripture. But many times the things that happen to us are not caused by you, but you can use them to help us understand some things we need to understand, not about other people, but about ourselves. And I pray this morning that you please help us do that. Well, there's been a lot that's happened this past week, this past month. Lord, it seems like there are terrible things happening all the time. It seems like all, far too frequently. But Lord, maybe in each one of these, you've got something to show us. You've got something to teach us. And I just pray you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and a mind to learn. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. A pastor is doing some uh, carpentry out in his garage. And uh, one of the little boys in the neighborhood comes by and walks in. He's working, cutting, sawing. Walks in and has a seat and just sits there looking at him. And the preacher's measuring and cutting and nailing, and he's thinking to himself, this little guy is probably admiring my skills. Finally, he asked him, he said, son, would you like me to teach you how to do this? He said, no, thank you. I'm just waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. Teachable moments don't always happen in the classroom. They don't happen always in the Sunday school hour. They don't even happen all the time during sermons. They can happen anywhere. They can happen at the supper table or at a ball game. They can happen when you're driving down the road or when you're sitting at the hospital. Jesus is always seems to always be teaching. He does a lot of his teaching out in the open. He'll be teaching people on a hillside, and next thing you know, he'll be in a boat just out on the ocean or the sea. He'll be in an upper room. At this point, Luke 12:1 tells us that he's, he's teaching in the middle of a very large crowd. He's teaching his disciples, and he's got this huge crowd. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says there's an innumerable multitude of people that they're almost trampling each other. They're waiting to hear what, the, what he's trying to tell them. And right before chapter 13, he stresses to them that you need to pay attention to what's going on around you. He says you need to discern the times. And somebody in the crowd speaks up. By the way, speaking of the times, and they recount this, this horrific accident, this tragic events that everybody's talking about. And and they want Jesus to tell them something about it. Jesus want him to address it in some way, to explain it in some way. And it becomes a teachable moment, not just for them, but for us. And the first thing he teaches them is this. The worst that happens calls you not to judgment, but for repentance. The worst that happens calls you not to judgment, but to repentance. What can you learn from the worst that happens? Not just that happens out in the world, so it happens around the world, but the worst that happens in your own life. What can you learn? Well, at first, maybe not much. 
You have to get past the trauma and past the pain and past the shock. It takes a little while to process these kind of things, to think them through. But eventually the questions flood your mind. How could this happen? In some cases, what you're asking is, how could this happen again? Why did this happen? Why did this happen again? Who did this? Who's responsible? We want to make some way to make sense of it. We want somebody to blame. We want some way to fix it. And that's what these people are maybe thinking Jesus is going to do. But he takes off in a completely different direction. Do you notice that? Look at the facts. He tells us about this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He's known to be cruel and merciless. And that's pretty obvious from this account. There's a, there's a group of worshipers that come to the temple in Jerusalem. Like good Jews, they bring animals to sacrifice. And they come into the, the temple and they're there on holy ground. They're willing to offer their animals and sacrifice just as God commanded them to do. And somehow Pilate has sent soldiers into the temple. And they are slaughtered. They slaughter these worshipers right where they stand. It says they, their own blood mixes with the blood of the animals that they're offering. Now, we don't know anything else about this. It's the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. It's the only time it's mentioned in history. But Jesus gives us an idea of what's going on in the mind of this crowd that's bringing this up. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Listen, that is precisely what they suppose. In the ancient world, they believed bad things only happened to bad people. Bad things only happened to bad people. Galileans didn't have a particularly good reputation with the rest of the Jews. They were considered almost... You're just barely within the family of God. So they're saying, well, I'm not, not surprised that this happened to Galileans. But these guys, they must have been worse sinners. They must have been worse sinners than all other Galileans. What does Jesus say? I tell you, no. In the original Greek, the first word in that sentence is no. Jesus is emphasizing the word no, absolutely not. Get that idea out of your head. Jesus turns their attention in a completely different direction. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, that's not enough for him. He, he stresses the point stronger. He brings up another tragedy about this tower in Siloam in Jerusalem that falls and kills 18 people. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem, I tell you, no. Absolutely not. Get that thought out of your mind. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is what Jesus is saying. Tragedies, horrific things, the worst that can happen does not give you a right to judge others. It gives you a reason to judge yourself. The most important question is not, well, why does God let this happen? The most important question is not, who's to blame? The most important question is, where do I stand before God? I was talking with a good friend of mine who is not a Christian. 
And I brought up something similar to that point. And he said, I am so sick of you Christians. I'm so sick of you. Because all you do is you say, well, the problem is sin. And the problem is we need to pray. So that's not enough. That's not enough. You, all you Christians think about is your religion, but that's not true. I don't know any Christians that don't want to do whatever we can to keep people safe, especially children. And I guarantee you there's going to be many Christians on the forefront of finding some solutions to this problem. Here's the point. Only Christians are realistic about the solution. Until people's hearts are changed, you will never make a law that's going to keep them from killing. You will never do it. Unless a person gets right with God, it won't matter what rights you give them or what rights you take away. This is a problem that requires, first and foremost, a change of heart. Now, I would think that every Christian would agree with that. Every one of us knows that what has to happen to stop this kind of thing is people have to have a change of heart. Here's the, here's the, the real point. There's only one person, only one person that you can work on changing their heart. And that's you. That's you. You can't change somebody else's heart. You have to begin with your own. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is repentance? Sunday school teacher asked that to class of kids. What is repentance? Old boy raises his hand. It means being sorry for what you've done. The teacher's just about to commend him when a little girl says, no, no, no. No, no, no. Repentance is not being sorry for what you've done. Repentance is being sorry enough not to do it again. Repentance is about a change of heart. It's about a change of mind. It's about a, a change of direction. It's about turning from your way to Jesus' way. You cannot keep going your way and please God. You cannot keep going your way and enjoy life. You cannot keep going your way and go to heaven. These folks in Jesus' day weren't expecting to die. They weren't expecting to die in the temple. They weren't expecting for that tower to fall on them and kill them. They had no time to prepare. Jesus says, but you do. You do. You do have time to prepare. You do have a chance to repent. You have a chance to repent right now. Right now. But you do not have forever. Which is what this parable that Jesus tells next is all about. In verse 6 through 9, he tells us that the worst that happens reminds us of God's mercy and our need for urgency. Ted Stubbs says procrastination is Satan's sharpest, finest tool. Why do we put things off? I'm thinking about that for myself. Why do I put things off? Usually it's because it's something I don't want to do. Uh, maybe because it's too bothersome. Take too much time. I don't have enough time to go do that right now. I'll do that later when I have a little more time. 
You're busy doing other things. And I'll be honest with you, procrastination is not always catastrophic. Uh, it will not hurt, contrary to some people's opinion, it will not hurt for me to wait one more day to clean out the gutters. It won't be tragic if I don't make it to the vets to get the dog's nails clipped on Monday. What evil will befall me if tomorrow I don't check my email? Those things are not all that important that they have to be done right away. But there are things that should never be put off. There are times when procrastination is deadly. When the worst happens, Jesus says, it ought to remind us how merciful God is. That he's given you and given me time to repent. But it should also remind us that you never know when it will be too late to repent. Jesus uses one of his favorite teaching methods here. He uses a parable. A parable is not just a story. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's meant to point to something else. And he tells this story of a fig farmer. Fig farmer goes out. Evidently, he's one of these guys that has a big orchard. And he has a, a, a guy that helps him. His main uh, administrator, I guess you'd call him. They're going out looking at all the fig trees and checking them out. And uh, as they're going through this, uh, they, you know, they, they're talking about, oh yeah, I remember we planted that one. We fertilized it. We kept it watered. And, and they're looking at it. Boy, these are looking really, really good. These these fig trees are going to really, really, really bring us a lot of a lot of harvest. But then they come to this one fig tree. They've been looking at it for three years, and it's not producing any fruit. And the owner turns, he says, listen, I've spent enough money, and I've spent enough time on this tree. It's time to cut it down. The other man says, well, what, boss, let's wait one more year. Let, let's don't cut it down yet. Uh, I'll prune it a little more. I'll give it a little more TLC. Uh, I'll work with it. And then if it doesn't produce, then I'll cut it down. I'll take it down just like you want. End of story. That's not very satisfying, is it? <laughs> well, did he cut the tree down? Did the tree have any fruit? Did it, you know, did it end up in the, in the burn pile? What, what happened to the tree? We don't know. And that's on purpose. Jesus leaves the ending of this story open because this story is not about fig trees. And it's not about orchards. It's about you and God. Because the fig tree is you. In his great mercy, God creates you and he plants you in this world. He creates you to enjoy life to the fullest, to enjoy life for his glory. He sends his son for you, to die for you so you can be forgiven, to, to rise again, to give you a new life. But here's the problem. He's looking at your life and there's no fruit there. There's no fruit. What kind of fruit is he looking for? I know some pretty fruity people. What kind of fruit is he looking for? He's looking for the fruit of repentance. He's looking for the evidence that you really have been changed by God's grace. John the Baptist preached about this in Matthew chapter 3. 
He told a crowd, he said, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus picked up on this same theme in John 15. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. You see, repentance is not just something you talk about. If I were to ask everybody in this room, have you repented? Oh, yes. Yes, Brother Mike, I've repented. And I'm not the person to argue, about, argue with you about whether you have or not. What I want you to understand is if you have, there is some evidence. And if you haven't, there's some evidence. You see, repentance, if it's real, it produces a real change. It produces a love for God. It produces a love for other people. It produces a life that has joy and peace that the world cannot explain and it cannot steal. True penance is not something you do one time and it's over. It's like saying, well, I took a bath uh, Monday. I don't need to take any more. I got real good and clean that time. I scrubbed, I scrubbed off, but I don't need any more baths. I've taken a bath. Some Christians seem to think, well, yes, I repented back when I was six years old. Repentance is not just a one-time choice. It's a lifestyle because God is continually calling on you to change. He is continually whittling away. He is continually giving you the choice to grow or to die. Kind of fruitfulness requires the power of Jesus, but it also requires your surrender. See, there's one great big difference between you and a fig tree. Fig tree doesn't have any choice what happens to it. Fig tree doesn't make any choices in life, but you do. And you either make choices to repent or you don't produce fruit. What happens to the tree that doesn't produce fruit? It's cut down. It's thrown into the fire. There comes a time when it is too late to repent. Not because God doesn't love you. You remember at the cross, how many of you remember, just make sure you're still with me, how many of you remember that on either side of Jesus, a thief was hung on a cross? Raise your hand nice and high. All right, nice and high. Come on now, way up high. All right, now I know you're with me again. Two thieves. Both of them are going to die. Jesus, one on his right, cries out for mercy. Remember me when you come to your kingdom, Lord. It's an expression of Repentance. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guy's about to die. He knows he's about to die. This is his last chance. I'm going to call out for mercy. He may not give it to me, but I'm going to call out for mercy. And what does he get? He gets mercy. Look at this dude on the other side. He's dying just like this other guy's dying. He knows he's dying. But when he looks at Jesus, he doesn't see a Savior. He doesn't see anybody he's interested in finding mercy from. He's still cursing Jesus, still mocking him, just like everybody else is. Could he have repented? That's an interesting question. Why, why wouldn't he? 
Why doesn't he repent? When he knows he's about to lose his life, why doesn't he repent? Here's the reason why. He has let his heart grow so hard and so cold, he doesn't want to repent. Sometimes people will tell me, say, preacher, you know what? I'll just wait till I, right before I die. When I get old, when I get to where I, I can't enjoy life anymore, whenever I, uh, I, I've gotten everything I want out of life, then I'll repent. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. There are a lot of people. Let me tell you what. It breaks my heart to say there are a lot of people sitting in a pew Sunday after Sunday. And the gospel does not break their heart. The gospel hardens their hearts. How can you die so close to Jesus and die unforgiven? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is a decision that you cannot afford to put off. There's a legend, it's not true of course, but there's a legend about Satan and his demons meeting together, trying to come up with a new strategy for Preventing people from getting saved. Preventing people from repenting and turning to Jesus. And one of the demons says, well, Master, I've got the perfect plan. I've got the perfect plan. What I'll do is I'll tell people that there's no heaven. No, Satan says, that won't work. Everybody wants to believe that on the other side of the death there's there's a good place waiting for them to go. Now, they won't believe that there's not a heaven. The second demon speaks up. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll convince them that there's no hell. And Satan says, no. No, that won't work either. He says, deep in their heart, people know that sin and evil has to be punished. And finally, the third demon speaks up. He says, Master, I won't tell them there's no heaven. And I won't tell them there's no hell. What I will tell them is there's no hurry. In the face of the worst that can happen, can you take a few minutes and consider what Jesus is saying here? Where will you be if death takes you without warning? A lot of people in the graveyard had plans for Monday. Had plans for next week. Had plans for vacation and school and retirement. All kind of different plans for the future that never came about. They were shocked to find out that death came to them much sooner than they thought. You can't know when that moment's going to be any more than I can. Here's what you can know. You can know that you're ready. You can know for sure where you stand with God. Are you sure? Can you look back in your life and recall a moment? You may not remember the exact date, the exact time. But can you recall a moment in your life when you made an about face when you turn from your sin and you surrender to Christ as your Savior and Lord, 
Can you remember a moment whenever your mind and heart was changed by the grace of God? If you cannot, then perhaps you have not repented. But say you can. Say you can remember that moment. You may be able to remember the time, the day. You may remember all the details. What's been going on since then? Has Jesus been changing your heart and your life? Has he been calling you to repent? Okay, we're going to have to get a, stay away from this direction. We're going to have to follow me instead of following yourself. Has he been redirecting you? Or have you been getting farther and farther and farther from him? You've taken a detour. And what repentance means is you've got to find your way back. God wants to change your life today, but he will only change your life when you repent because you can never repent too soon for you never know how soon it may be too late. Bow your heads with me, please.